welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koistra in the History Department. I am joined by Carrie Pafley in the Philosophy Department. Our guest today is Marian Larson, who teaches in the English Department. And we are going to start with a little discussion of the Harlem Renaissance before moving on to a discussion of the theologian Howard Thurman and his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Thanks for listening. Mary, let's start by talking about the Harlem Renaissance. We're reading a few of the Harlem Renaissance poems with students as kind of a gateway then into talking about the theology of Howard Thurman. So do you want to talk us through some of the key ideas from the Harlem Renaissance and maybe talk about a poem or two that you really like from the Harlem Renaissance? Sure. So the Harlem Renaissance, um, I mean, officially didn't last very long. Um, it's basically from about uh, right after World War I, so basically 1919, into the 1930s. And um, so the, the post-World War I, you have uh, folks returning from um, overseas, coming back and figuring out where do they want to live. And many African-Americans who were involved in the war were not treated so great by the US military, but were treated super well by fellow soldiers, uh, especially, and citizens over in Europe by like the French, for example. Mm -hmm. And so they came back thinking, hey, maybe things are gonna begin changing in my life. Um, and they assumed that settling in the North might be a way to jumpstart a better life. And then you also have, uh, Anne-Marie Koistra talked about this in one of your talked about this in one of your civil rights lectures about uh, the great migration and mm -hmm. in the early 20th century, African-Americans, especially from the South, moving uh, West and also North um, in hopes of a better life and for jobs. So Harlem, um, part of New York City is where a lot of these uh, African-Americans settled. And um, the Harlem Renaissance is uh, you could say it's kind of an exploration of uh, by African-Americans of uh, the history of African-Americans and also what then contemporary life was like for African-Americans. Um, and it's largely an arts movement, but also a social thought movement. So you have uh, literature, drama, music, visual art, dance, um, people associated with the Harlem Renaissance, and then also some people associated with the Harlem Renaissance were uh, trained in areas like sociology, anthropology, um, and some of them were also quite involved in um, kind of uh, connected with early stages of the racial part of the civil rights movement, um, trying to sort of talk about what is it like to be black in America today and how do we want things to change. Um, so in terms of what the Harlem Renaissance was trying to accomplish, um, Langston Hughes, who is uh, one, one of the prominent leaders of the Harlem Renaissance and also one of its poets said he thought that what he was trying to do and what others in the movement were trying to do is to express the quote, harshness and beauty of the black experience. Um, and so uh, he, uh, he wrote poems trying to articulate that, wrote essays trying to articulate that. Um, there were also some who wanted to connect with and build on the African-American past. Uh, 
Uh, the novelist Zora Neale Hurston would be an example of that, uh, where she, uh, one of her novels is called Their Eyes Were Watching God. And she uh, there is trying to be quite truthful about both the brokenness and the deep challenges mm -hmm. um, faced by many uh, black people in the South, um, and, but also show their full humanity. So kind of the impact of racism, the full humanity of people. And she wrote her books in uh, black Southern dialect. Right. Um, she was a linguist, I think. Uh, I linguist think she was trained as an anthropologist, actually. Okay. But I know that she, yeah, th that's how she got started mm -hmm. as a writer is kind of uh, studying um, various people groups and their, uh, the way they talk and their experience. And she herself was black and wanted to write about that. Um, yeah, she starts out collecting black folktales. Right, right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so she's one of the people wanting to explore the black Southern experience as part of this, what is the African-American experience like? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you also have um, people like the painter, Aaron Douglas, mm -hmm. who um, wanted to help see the black past with new eyes and kind of uh, reclaim um, kind of African tribal mask and mm -hmm. uh, uh, African tribal fabric patterns and all of that sort of thing he would incorporate into their work. And so I think about like Picasso, for example, in some of his work after he had seen that African tribal mask exhibit and he thought, ooh, that's kind of an interesting tradition I might wanna draw on. But you have people like uh, Aaron Douglas who has a little bit more of a right to draw on that past mm -hmm. and also trying to kind of reclaim it and say, yeah, we use words like primitive, but that's not really, it's just a different culture and it's part of my culture. It's part of my past. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, one of the people that Anne-Marie mentioned in one of her lectures, one of the things that he said that he wanted the Harlem Renaissance to do was to um, create first rate art, music and literature. It's kind of like, you know what? let's show that we can stand toe to toe with the big guys mm -hmm. and that we can produce wonderful, um, wonderful work. No one has to say kind of pat, you know, pat us on the head and say, Oh, good for you that, that you produce that. Um, well, and I think bringing up W.E.B. Du Bois is kind of interesting because it also gets at some of the contradictions of the Harlem Renaissance because yeah. Du Bois was very much um someone who believed in the talented 10th. He was a member of the black elite. Mm -hmm. He was a little uncomfortable with folks who were not part of the black elite contributing to the Harlem Renaissance. Yep. Mixed feelings, for example, about jazz music because he thought it didn't display the race at their best. Yeah. And, and well, and speaking of disagreement, so um, County Cullen, for example, uh, one of, he was um, a member of the Harlem Renaissance, a poet, and one of his best known poems um, is called Yet Do I Marvel. And it takes the very traditional, largely very white sonnet form that he uses in order to talk about his experience as a black person. And so he argued that he says, my race has nothing to do with the poetic tradition that I might choose to draw from. He says, good poetry should feel applicable to anybody. Mm -hmm. But then by contrast, um, 
Langston Hughes said that he thought black poets should try to create a distinctive art, should create their own voice, their own tradition. Um, and he says we should combat, quote, the urge within the race toward whiteness. So he was trying to fight against what felt like pressures to assimilate. And he thought people like County Cullen were giving into that. We're going to be reading the short story, Sonny's Blues, by James Baldwin uh, a little bit later. That's another example of that way of thinking about what the Harlem Renaissance is trying to do. Let's um, use uh, both in terms of theme and plot and even uh, sentence patterns and vocabulary feels kind of jazz not kind of, very jazz influenced. And then James Weldon Johnson kind of along these same lines, he draws from traditional African-American sermons and uh, vocal patterns in the poetry that he writes. So he and uh, Baldwin and Hughes are all in the let's be distinctively African-American camp. And then County Cullen would be an example of someone who says, no, I just want to try to produce good stuff. And I don't want people to be able to tell that I'm black by the way that I wrote this poem. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because in some ways it mirrors conversations we've been having throughout humanities for about sort of, and I always think of humanities for as we're sort of breaking down this myth of Western culture or, or maybe expanding who fits in. Yeah, in yeah. And so as women start to be a part of that conversation, there are similar sort of fights over, okay, so do we try to play with the big boys, right? Do we try to play with the men? Do we have to be more masculine in order to fit in? Um, or um, can we do something that is feminine, that is gendered and is still taken as seriously? And you see some of that same sort of debate in the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that just made me think of, I think, is it Edna St. Vincent Millay who tends to write in the sonnet form, but with a, you know, very particular female voice, mm -hmm. whereas I think of Virginia Woolf as doing something quite different. Mm -hmm. Well, and Woolf, I mean, near the end of A Room of One's Own, she talks about trying to cultivate an androgynous mind. Yeah. And um, if I read her correctly on that point, I think she's partly trying to argue that everyone benefits, uh, men and women benefit, if more women feel that they can participate in continuing to build the literary canon. Um, but similarly, uh, women writers who identify as traditionally feminine and with traditionally female experiences, have something to contribute, but they also need to kind of cultivate the quote masculine part of their brains, whatever that means, um, which I think is kind of interesting too. Yeah, and I think too, I mean, Wolf, Wolf is sort of saying it's, it's fine to be female or male, but it shouldn't be an obstacle that one has to overcome in the literature. Right. It needs to be able to be a natural part of it. And if you're a woman, there's going to be a female and a male part of it. And if you're yes. a man, same deal. Yes, yes. And, and, and I think that that's very similar to what the Harlem Renaissance artists are trying to say and trying to work with, mm -hmm. only the issue is race rather than gender. Yeah, yeah. And, and a sort of a balance between um, 
being part of the canon that already exists and participating in that way and expanding the exactly. canon. Say, no, jazz fits in. That is a great type of music. And here is a unique contribution. Exactly. Well, and I'm a big fan of a book that I'm reading in another class with students. Um, and this is Nella Larson's novella, Passing. I don't know if either of you have read it. I think you mentioned that in one of your lectures too. I can't help but mention it because it's fascinating because it's a great example, Carrie, of what you were just talking about, how there are a lot of different people participating in the Harlem Renaissance. Some are going one way, some are going another. And she's definitely someone who's going, I'm not writing a novel, I'm writing novella. And the book is written from a very distinctly female perspective, but it's um, definitely a book in which racial identity is not fixed, not at all. And it's a question of what choices do you make in embracing being part of the black community? What do you gain and lose by choosing to, as she says, pass for being white? Um, and it's, it's, it's just fascinating. If people have not read this little novella, it's not a huge investment of your time. And it is, it is a great um, topic of conversation. So mm -hmm. I'd highly recommend it. Mm. Yes. But anyway, there's that. Well, and this also seems to be a good transition too. And it's not like we can't come back to the Harlem Renaissance, but Howard Thurman is also trying to figure out how to deal with a Western Christian Christianity and reclaim it, if you will, for I think, um, well, he calls them the disinherited. Mm -hmm. So Marion, I don't know, do you want to just give a little sort of overview of the, the book? Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I think that Eric Leifblad mentioned this in his lecture that Howard Thurman is, is one example um, under the bigger umbrella of what often gets called black theology. Um, and it's largely called black theology because typically the contributors to that are black. Um, and also because we definitely see this in Thurman, part of what Thurman is doing is he's writing out of his own particularity, his own experience as an African-American living at a particular time um, and in a particular place. The particular place was the American South uh, he was raised in Florida, um, mostly by his grandmother, who was a slave when she was born. And the town that he lived in, I think it was Daytona, Florida, at the time only had public schooling available for black kids up through seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And um, his family uh, felt really strongly that they wanted to give him educational opportunities beyond just seventh grade. And so they, like, not just his immediate family, but like his extended family, pooled all of the resources they could pull together in order to buy him a bus ticket so that he could, by himself, go to another part of Florida where there was schooling available for Black kids up through high school. Um, and actually, the story is longer than this because apparently... Uh, he had just enough money for his ticket, but didn't realize he was also gonna get charged for his bags or something like that. And he was thinking, how am I even gonna get on the bus? And some white stranger 
gave him the extra money that he needed, mm -hmm. which was kind of a miraculous part of his story. Um, but he, uh, he, basically set, he basically says in Jesus and the Disinherited that um, I think he's largely writing to, Afri to his fellow African-Americans um, but I think also hoping that we will read it too. <laughs> and so, so he says, look, I know that there's a lot about Christianity that has been used inappropriately to keep us down. Um, this is a little bit like Douglas's critique of slaveholding Christianity. So it's been used to justify segregation. It's been used to justify social inequality and racial prejudice. Um, Thurman says, I get that. And he says, but you know what? That's a dramatic misinterpretation of the gospel. And he says, I'm not arguing that Jesus was racially black, but um, Thurman says, uh, Jesus's, and this perspective is sometimes called the black Jesus or a black Jesus perspective. He says, let's think about what is true for African-Americans in 1939, when Thurman wrote Jesus and the Disinherited, and let's think about what was true for Jesus. He says, Jesus, as a Jewish person born uh, under Roman occupation, was a member of a persecuted minority. Um, Jesus was born into a, an economically poor family. Um, and so, so Thurman says, uh, he doesn't just make the move that some theologians do to say Jesus has a special place in his heart for the poor and disenfranchised. Uh, he goes way farther than that to say Jesus was poor. He was disenfranchised. He was a member of the disinherited himself. And so when, like when Moltmann talks about Jesus as our brother and companion in suffering, Thurman is making a similar point, but from a uh, social location, um, cultural experience perspective. Um, and so really emphasizing the, um, that aspect of Jesus as being, uh, willing to, uh, as experiencing the same kinds of things that uh, African-Americans in Thurman's day were experiencing. So he talks about that. And then Thurman spends a couple of chapters saying, um, I want to try to unpack a bit the harm that is done um, really to everyone living black and white living under a system of uh, racial prejudice and segregation. And, and so he said, he partly says um, there's various temptations for those of us who are members of the disinherited um, under segregation temptations to give in to anger or to feel like um, I'm justified in being violent against others, or I'm justified in being deceitful in the way I interact with my white neighbors. Um, and, and Thurman says, that's totally understandable, I get it, but it's, it's soul corroding to let yourself become that kind of a person. Um, it ends up harming you and harming others. Uh, and so he ends with a chapter on um, the importance of love, but it's, it's like strong, powerful love. It's like the nonviolent social resistance love that John Lewis and Martin Luther King Jr. talk about. Um, formative in Thurman's thinking was time he spent with Gandhi 
in India during part of the Gandhi's leadership in the struggle for India's independence, um, which was also formative. I mean, Gandhi's thinking was formative for uh, King and um, Bonhoeffer too. Yeah. I mean, so I think one of the things that's very interesting in reading Jesus and the Disinherited right after Moltmann, and mm. you kind of touched on this already, Marian, but quite honestly, it's part of, and Carrie mentioned this too, it's part of the trajectory of Humanities 4, is I think that there is a way in which a lot of the texts that we're reading are trying to dislodge Christianity from its perch at the top of traditional Western Christendom. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to get us to see Christianity with fresh eyes. And sometimes with the goal of maybe having us reject Christianity in the case of Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx. But I think there's a way in which um, Moltmann and even Thurman would agree with the premise that Christianity has been co-opted to an extent by the, you know, sort of Western oppressive powers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, I was just talking with my students today about Moltmann, about that, that very thing that in some ways, these 20th century theologians are agreeing with the criticisms of Nietzsche, um, of Marx, that yes, this is, that it's just their answer to those same questions is not to reject Christianity, but rather to reform it and reframe Christianity, not as Western Christendom, but as something else, something more inclusive. Well, and I think, I, I, go ahead, Marianne. I was just going to say, I love the fact that we're reading people who go in both of those directions. Those who, you know, both, both the, the big unmaskers <laughs> and Thurman and Moltmann are, uh, are willing to have really strong critiques, but we as Christians get to see that it's understandable why some people would want to reject Christianity. And maybe some of the things that Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx want to reject are things I as a Christian want to reject or deeply question also. And then we see examples of what it might look like to accept various critiques but then say, I'm not giving up on this, um, but I'm going to think about it differently. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to add, I think that um, it, it all does kind of tie into various ideas about the kingdom of God mm -hmm. and to what extent the kingdom of God is here and is already partially realized and to what extent we might think of the kingdom of God as something not yet fully realized. And I think both for Moltmann and for Thurman, they have a much greater sense that the kingdom of God is already at hand. And there are things that we as Christians are called to do in the work of the redemption that has already begun. And so, whereas Thurman is say, you know, saying, we have to have a much more expansive view of love that can overcome all sorts of things, I mean, Molman, and we talked about this in the last podcast, Molman is saying Christ created the whole creation and there is no justification for us going, this world can go to hell in a handbag. That is the sort of, you know, view that we've had. Right. That's, that's not, that's not how we should be living. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, I got asked the question of whether or not Moltmann was a vegetarian <laughs> because of his <laughs> because of the way he talks about creation. I was like, that's a really good. I mean, I would think he would at least be for sustainability, right? That we don't we don't sort of control the world and do whatever we want with it. That this is part of God's redemptive work. So we ought to we ought to act with care toward um, the entirety of creation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I had a similar kind of question on Moltmann, um, not necessarily a question, but I, that we were sort of talking about um, his sort of totalizing view of God's restoration of the whole mm. world. And I said, I, I think he's one of these theologians who, if you said, will my, you know, pet Fido be going to heaven? I, I think he would say yes. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but vegetarian, does he believe dogs go to heaven? I, Moltmann, it's, it's possible. I'm not sure what Thurman would think about that, but anyway. I do though see in Thurman and Moltmann a, sort of a rediscovery. I, it's too bad that it has to be a rediscovery that things that we don't sort of see as having worth have worth. And I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that we ought not be so dismissive. And so I don't know, the, the, the Western tradition is so, it has such a strong tendency to say there is an objective view and mm -hmm. everything that is not part of that objective view is non-Western or it's feminist or it's African-American. And all of those things are biases and perspectives, but the Western view is the view from nowhere. And I like that the theologians were now reading and Moltmann and Howard Thurman and, and the, the folks in that Harlem Renaissance are pushing back against that mm -hmm. um, to say, no, this perspective, again, I guess I'm thinking about the, the expansion of the canon Mm -hmm. um, these are voices that have always been there. They just haven't been included. Well, and I, and I think there, I mean, Thurman doesn't say it this directly in Jesus and the Disinherited, but I think that these theologians are ones who, if you ask them, would say, view from nowhere, objective view, what is that? There is no such thing. Right. Um, you know, if you look at the social and historical and cultural contexts into which uh, any of the theologians we've read so th that we've read since Humanities One, mm -hmm. the situations that they were raised in, um, even though they didn't talk about how they were shaped by their own context, um, they were deeply influenced by them. We just tend to think about that great tradition that Roger Olson refers to, that that's the objective, true at all times for all people perspective and everything else is um, maybe interesting, but limited. And, uh, and I think that people like Thurman and Moltmann would say, yeah, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and I think this is why it's really nice that we have paired some of the Harlem Renaissance poems with um, Howard Thurman, because I think in the Harlem Renaissance poems that we're reading, we do see those um, poets kind of pushing against Western Christendom, especially in the poem by Langston Hughes, Goodbye Christ. But I appreciate that, you know, because maybe we're at Bethel, um, we do read that poem in context with uh, Thurman, who's, who's saying, 
I get why you're saying that Langston. I get it. But here's, here's still a path forward in which we maybe say hello to Christ, a Christ that maybe a lot of white people don't even recognize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I like that. So. Yeah. Any, so I have a question for you, Marion, about any recommendations on, I mean, we're reading such a short selection of Harlem Renaissance poets. Do you have any recommendations for Harlem Renaissance folks that we're not reading? Um, I mean, the main names that would pop into my head are people that we're reading at least a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. I'd say read more Langston Hughes, for example. Um, I, I really like James Baldwin's writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I can't think of I, I can't think of names that I would that I would add. Um, we got to read Nilla Larson. Oh, right, right. Yeah, Anne Marie's already mentioned one. Uh, yeah. Oh, and I already mentioned Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, Their eyes are what we're watching. God is her best known work. Um, that's the one I know the best. I would recommend that one. And then in the uh, jazz lecture video, we'll learn uh, some about uh, some African American musicians who got jazz off the ground um yeah and were deeply involved in that harlem renaissance as mm-hmm. well yeah. like the year of duke ellington ella um, fitzgerald yes yeah well and of course when we're reading the langston hughes poem theme for english b he mentions as he's writing about his own identity in response to a fictitious uh english uh prompt he mentions that he likes Bessie Bach and Bob. So of course you've got to listen to Bessie Smith as you're reading through some of the Harlem Renaissance poems. Mm-hmm. She was uh, she was fantastic in the Ken Burns uh, series on jazz. He's got a story yeah. about her. Do you know this story, Carrie? Yeah, because I've uh, I had been working through that Ken Burns um, documentary. Ah, uh, so the story is, and Carrie, feel free to like stop me if I'm not telling this correctly, but there was a story told by one of the musicians that she played with that she was um, at one point performing on a stage and um, it was outside and there were members of the clan approaching. And so they were like, Bessie, you know, we're going to get shut down. Here come the clan. But apparently she left the stage and confronted the clan and basically was like, you know what, you guys can leave right now. And they turned around and left and because apparently she was just such a force of nature. So wow. that's right. gonna let nobody turn me round. Mm-hmm. That's, right. that's right. Wow. Wow. Well, and then there was uh, Marian Anderson and she, I've got a, she has a soft spot in her heart, in my heart because of her first name, of course, but it was not spelled my way. Uh, <laughs> she was an African-American uh, classically trained singer. Um, and uh Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, so FDR's wife, um, was very supportive of her music and tried to arrange for Marian Anderson to sing in this large venue in Washington, D.C., and some, uh, a bunch of white people opposed that and wouldn't let it happen. So then uh, Eleanor Roosevelt persuaded her husband to let Marian Anderson sing on uh, at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, So which was a a particularly appropriate venue, I thought, and um, more people could be there. (laughs) I think there's I think there are audio recordings of that. 
Well, and I think um, Eleanor Roosevelt in protest resigned her membership in the Daughters of the American Revolution. Yeah, because that was the group that was in charge of that particular space. Yeah. Take that, right? Yeah. Take that, you D-A-R. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Marion, I know that you're a voracious reader. And so, like, can you limit your 10 books on your nightstand to a couple of the tops? <laughs> Yeah, so I just finished, here's a book that was on my nightstand till a few days ago, but I finished reading it. Um, I'm gonna, oh, I forget the author's name. The title is Kyrie, K-Y-R-I-E. And it's a collection of poems. They're all sonnets um, set, uh, set during the time of the Spanish influenza. And so you have uh, the, the poems are written in different um, voices and from various perspectives. Some of them are like letters home from World War I soldiers who were about to come home. And some of them were um, set uh, here. Um, anyway, super interesting. Ellen Bryan Voigt is the author. So Kyrie is the title. And right now, I'm reading, so this is still on my nightstand. Right now I'm reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, Cast as in the Cast System, C-A-S-T-E. And uh, wow, uh, she, she basically argues, she says that in modern history, there have been three places in the world where a caste system of a uh, really strong social hierarchy based on like racial identity um, has been put in place and enforced. And the three places are Nazi Germany, India, and the United States. And when she talks about, here are examples of the caste system in India and what it's like for people from the untouchable class, um, and then she's, that, so she'll talk about that. And then she says, example, 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 in the United States, either a long time ago or now. Wow. Um, I mean, it's a really, really damning indictment mm -hmm. of our country. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping, I'm about halfway through, I'm hoping that there's going to be some glimmers of like, what's our way out of this? But I just feel like her assessment is really, really powerful. Marion, how did you find that book? Uh, I read a review of it. Um, either, in Christian Century, I think. Um, she also wrote a book about the Great Migration a couple of years ago that I have not read, but that I've heard is really good. Great. Carrie, what's on your nightstand? Well, in addition to, I still have Terry Pratchett's Jingo on my nightstand for some lighter, more fun reading. I've also been reading some feminist aesthetics this week. So Carolyn Korsmeyer's What is Art? Um, and, and thinking about the, the feminine related to the expansion of the canon. I think that's why I'm in the expansion of the canon mode so much. Um, how do feminists critique the Western canon of art and also expand it and, and how are they involved in creating art and these new forms of art that come along. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, I, sounds awesome. I, I am still just slogging my way through this doorstopper <laughs> sister's biography. And we are now past World War II. The woman who is besties with Adolf Hitler has shot herself in the head, but unfortunately didn't die or fortunately didn't die. I don't know. If, oh, but yeah, she had to be taken care of um, for several years thereafter. And wow. Yeah. So there's, that sounds like a happy book. Yeah. I need to find a happy book to read. We all need a happy book, especially this week. It's good to have happy things. But this just tells you, Carrie and I have been on sort of the same book for several weeks. And I don't know if that just means that we're so tired by the end of the day that we just don't even have the energy to read oh, book for fun. Yeah. The reason I've been making progress through this Isabel Wilkerson book, especially this week, is because uh, I cannot... I just have to wait until we know exactly what's going to happen with the election. I didn't watch the election on Tuesday night um, because I figured correctly, as it turns out, that we probably wouldn't even know that night. So I just I'm doing all I can to avoid all of that until we know more. And so and I'm also going to bed at like eight o'clock. And so. <laughs> So I'm like exhausted, but not quite ready to fall asleep. So I've been actually reading a lot. Yeah, that's ideal. Whereas, yeah, if you're staying up late, as I have been, I'm then just too exhausted. And so I just fall straight, straight to sleep. But this is a good week to be thinking about Moltmann and his approach to anxiety and the anxieties of the world. And then eventually to move, be moving to Camus, maybe a different interpretation <laughs> of how we ought to deal with anxiety. <laughs> Wow. Maybe it's time to pick up a little Calvin and Hobbes. That's <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I love me some Calvin and Hobbes. Well, so listeners, you should be um, reading a little um, Harlem Renaissance poetry, listening to a little jazz music, and uh, maybe embracing the theology of Howard Thurman this week. But in the meantime, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.